Good afternoon. Welcome to Big Sky Christian Fellowship. One of the more inspirational people alive today is this weird, untamed European guy named Wim Hof. Are any of you guys familiar with this guy? He's a 61-year-old Dutch man who can routinely do things that doctors can't fully understand. Over time, he's taught his body to endure things that nobody imagined possible. Wim Hof has over 20 world records, including swimming the longest distance under ice without a wetsuit. How long do you think the record is? 188 feet. Sitting submerged in ice the longest. How long could you sit in a bathtub packed with ice? His record is an hour and 53 minutes, completely covered in ice with no shirt. He's climbed both Mount Everest and Mount Kilimanjaro wearing only shoes and shorts. And he once ran a marathon through the desert without drinking any water during the run. This isn't just stuff I read on the internet. These are all verified feats. My favorite thing about Wim Hof is he's not a muscular athletic guy that works out in a gym all day long. He's a 61-year-old ex-mailman from the Netherlands who looks exactly whatever you're picturing right now. <laughs> He's ordinary in almost every way except for, of course, an extraordinary self-control. I first learned about him in Outside Magazine, and here's a quick blurb from that article. It says, over the past decade, researchers from major universities have studied Hoff and found solid evidence that when practicing his breathing methods, he can control his own body temperature, nervous system, and immune response. And these findings are head-scratchers for medical science because humans are not supposed to be able to do any of these things. It's even documented in peer-reviewed papers that, among other things, Hoff may be able to turn on, at his body's will, a tap of euphoria-inducing chemicals that can provide natural pain relief. What a powerful example of extraordinary self-control. What an example of telling your body to keep going when everything inside of you tells you to give up. So on a scale of 1 to 100, with 1 being a little baby and 100 being that crazy Dutch guy, where are you on the scale of self-control? Think to yourself what your number would be. I suspect you're a little bit like I am. I think about that guy sitting in ice water for two hours, and I'm so inspired. But 20 minutes from now, I'm going to get into my car, and the first thing I'm going to do is turn up the seat heater, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's great when other people have that incredible self-control, but I don't want to be cold. Well, that's a harmless example, but our inability to control ourselves and withstand temptation does often lead to crisis points in our lives and our relationships. There's some here this afternoon, I would imagine, that know that their use of alcohol is ruining precious relationships, yet they lack the self-control to stop drinking. I imagine there's others with us right now that get angry and lose control like the Incredible Hulk, but instead of smashing through walls, you just shout hurtful things at your spouse or your children, and you feel remorse afterwards, but you'll do the same thing the next day. Statistics hint that there are likely people among us unable to get through one day without looking at pornography and anxiety and gossip and theft and harsh criticism and depression. If I went on even for another 30 seconds, I'm certain that I would list at least one thing that everybody here would love to overcome. We all struggle, myself included, with things that we know are wrong. We know it's not best for us, but we lack the self-control to overcome temptation and stop those behaviors. Well, each Sunday this year, we've been studying attributes from a list 
in the book of Galatians that the Bible tells us a Christ follower should be improving in. This list includes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. These are all things that when we're walking rightly with God, they, they should be slightly improving and flowing out of us. And the final item on this list is self-control. As we follow Jesus, you and I are supposed to become more self-controlled. But we know this isn't always the case. We can all instantly think of at least one person with a dramatic lack of self-control in their life. But let's make it a little bit more personal if we're honest. We know that each one of us lacks self-control to the level that we'd like to have it. Well, fortunately for us, God never tells us to do anything difficult without giving us instruction and wisdom in how we can obey and accomplish the difficult things that have been asked. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and I'd like us to study this particular teaching in two quick categories. Number one, let's talk about the bad news in our battle for self-control, because we know it's not easy. And then in section two, let's talk about the good news in our battle for self-control and what we have as Christians, what we have as Christ followers at our disposal. So section one, let's talk about three things that are bad news and hopefully maybe feel a little bit affirmed that we're not alone in our struggle to be more self-controlled. Ephesians 2.1 starts off like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And there's probably already some who are listening that disagree. And we might say, well, pastor, I don't really feel dead in my temptation or my transgressions or my sins. I'm not always getting everything right, but, you know, I skied for seven hours today and I've never felt more alive, right? There's some of us that are just feeling great right now. And so when we read something that says you're dead in your sin, we say, I don't agree with that. I don't feel dead in my sin. But I think a better translation of the Greek word that's used in this passage is mastered. What it's really telling us is that there's been times in your life when you've been mastered by sin. So what this verse is really saying that as human beings alive in this world, you and I routinely do sinful and self-defeating things that we would rather not do. And nobody's going to shout amen, but we probably are, are nodding our heads a little bit. So if sin is breaking God's boundaries or breaking God's ideals and choosing instead what we want more or what we want most in that moment, I think we can all agree that there's been times in our life when that has been the motivation that has been what is mastering our decisions and our impulses. And that's bad news. And that's what the passage starts off telling us. Another thing that we could categorize as bad news comes here in Ephesians 2.2 2 when it says this, In these transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. That's some harsh language there. Let's try to explain it in more day-to-day -day language. I think it's saying there's a shared element of every single culture. I've been to too many countries that I can remember right now, and they all had this in common. In every culture, in every society, there's a destructive pull towards selfish gratification and fulfilling momentary desire, right? We all know that sometimes we just want to do what we feel like doing in that moment, even if we know it's not best long term. And that's probably more true in America than it's true anywhere else. What's one of the first things we learn in history class? We learn about the Boston Tea Party, right? And what's the justification for the Boston Tea Party? Well, we had to rebel and become independent from England because they were infringing on our personal rights. 
right? Here's another example. In 2013, New York City banned the sale of any personal serving of soda that was more than 16 ounces. You guys remember that story? The thinking was this. Everybody in the medical field conclusively agreed that a regular intake of a high volume of sugary soda was incredibly harmful to people's health. Yet, people lacked the self-control to not drink too much of it, and over time, that put an incredible strain on the public health system in the form of obesity and type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And so the thinking was, people could have soda whenever they wanted, but it just had to be in a serving of less than 16 ounces. What do you guys think New York thought about that? <laughs> 15 months later, the law was struck down. And just think about, think about what that's illustrating. People are saying it's unconstitutional for you to restrict my impulse to be unhealthy. And I won't let you regulate my health past the supersized soda, right? And I mean, what about every single advertisement or commercial that we come across and the way that it stirs at that desire to fulfill our impulses? What do the commercials tell us? They tell us that car will make you more desirable. That underwear will make you sexier. That new equipment will make you better at sports. And corporations make billions of dollars a year because every culture has a destructive pull towards selfish gratification and fulfilling momentary desires, just like it tells us here in Ephesians 2.2. What's the final piece of bad news from today's passage, which maybe affirms that this is hard to live lives of self-control? We'll listen to Ephesians 2.3. It says, All of us lived among this at one time, gratifying the cravings of flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We were, by nature, deserving of wrath. This is telling us that the majority of people will bring great harm to themselves and others because of a lack of self-control in response to these forces. It's bad news, right? We're starting off with bad news before we move on to the good news. I looked up New Year's resolutions to see, just looking for more illustrations and evidence of if this claim is true, that most of us actually harm ourselves with our lack of self-control. I know I do from time to time. Four of the top 10 most common New Year's resolutions are to lose weight, save more money, quit smoking, and read more. That means everybody who's filling these surveys is admitting that we eat too much, we spend too much, we have reckless health habits, and we look at screens too much. Like, this is all of us. This is our country. And I think the reason why we're fascinated by that first example of Wim Hof is that he can make himself do things that are very uncomfortable. I doubt anybody here could last more than three minutes in an ice bath. I know I would get, like, right up to the rim of the tub and I'd be like, I'm good. I don't want to feel, I want to feel uncomfortable. And I think this is why we're so weak to resist temptation. The devil in the lie of this world is that Pleasure and fulfillment comes from resisting anything unpleasant. We rationalize, I need to drink alcohol to reduce my social anxiety. I need to gossip about that person to exact, extract revenge for how they made me feel. I need to look at pornography to escape the weight of loneliness. I need to eat more than I should because I prefer the pleasure of overeating now to the discomfort of resisting my cravings later, right? And the list goes on and on of ways that we don't want to resist anything unpleasant. Well, the Bible never asks us to do anything uh, that's hard without 
giving us the insight and the power to accomplish what's been asked. So let's move on to section two and and let's just kind of realize that though it's hard to live lives of self-control, there's good news in our battle to do so. Let's end with three things that we could call good news in our battle as we try to grow in self-control. Let's let Ephesians 2.4 encourage us and it says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Because of his great love for us. The first good news for us in our battle for self-control is this. Even in your depths, even in your lowest moment, even in your most pathetic attempt to resist temptation, God loved you. Isn't that good news? If you feel defeated, if you feel frustrated, God loves you. That's our starting point as we work to become people of more self-control. So many times we feel defeated in our spiritual lives because we feel like we have to make more progress against sin and temptation. And when we don't, the devil makes us feel like because of our sin, we're unlovable to God. That's just a trap that so many of us fall into. You might feel hopeless in your battle against a particular temptation. You might have deep secrets that you've never confessed to anybody. You might have an ongoing sin that truly is a master over you right now. And none of that cancels Ephesians 2.4. None of that cancels that God loves you. He loves you so much he sent Jesus Christ to defeat what I couldn't defeat. To defeat what you couldn't defeat. So if the devil tells you you're unlovable because you can't defeat sin, we can say... The good news is God's love was never based on me defeating sin. And he loved me so much that he sent Jesus Christ to defeat it for me. What's an illustration of this? Nobody picks out a rescue dog because of its bloodlines or because of its ability to obey or because of its outward beauty. Someone adopts a rescue dog because they have an, because the person has an abundance of affection and they wish to pour out that love and affection on something pitiful. right? And the more pitiful the dog is, Like the more that tender-hearted person uh, wants to adopt them. Oh, this dog used to get beat with a stick. Oh, this dog used to get starved for a week. Oh, I'll take all of them, right? Because the people that get rescue dogs just have extra love and affection that they want to pour out on something. But they don't bring that rescue dog home and keep beating it with a stick or keep starving it because that's what the dog is used to. They adopt it into their family. They lavish it with love and affection and eventually it becomes a privileged member of the family. So the great part about this analogy is that you are a spiritual rescue dog. Even at your most pathetic point, even at my lowest point, even as we were mastered by other forces, God loved us. He adopted us into his family. And he's lavished his love and affection on us. So the next time the devil tells you that your sin makes you unlovable to God, read Ephesians 2.4 out loud, you beautiful spiritual rescue dog. The second good news from today's passage is this. Those who walk with Jesus have been given eyes and awareness to this reality. There's likely people here today that are early on in their journey of following Jesus. And when we read that first verse that said you're dead in your sin, they're like, well, I'll have to think about that a while. But there's also probably people that have been walking with the Lord for decades. And when I read that verse, they're like, amen. That is so true. I have been so defeated by sin in my past. So the good news is that Jesus gives us eyes and awareness to this reality, but that conviction, it means that we're, we're now different, right? Somebody who's dead in their sin and transgressions doesn't know it. They don't admit it. So if we do have a realization 
that there's been times when we've been mastered by sin. It's evidence that God is working in our life. He's making us new and we have a new relationship with him and to sin. Ephesians 2.1 starts off by saying, you have been made alive in Christ. And that's where the good news starts to really get exciting. It's this metaphor that explains we've been made alive in Christ and we now are in a new kingdom. One of my favorite documentaries is uh, it's about 10 years old. It's a, a movie called Maybe God Grew Tired of Us. And uh, it's, it's these cameras that follow along these Sudanese refugees that grew up in an African refugee camp, basically political prisoners in between two borders, locked in fences, uh, and then they get granted American citizenship. They fly on a plane for the first time. They're given an apartment. Someone explains to them how to use a dishwasher, uh, how to pay their bills, how to use an alarm clock. And now they have freedom to go to the swimming pool, to go grocery shopping. My favorite scene in the whole movie is just watching these refugees, these ex-refugees, now they're citizens, walking through this humongous grocery store, just overcome with all the choices that they have of what to eat. It's a beautiful picture of people that are now belonging to a new kingdom. When it tells us that we're made alive in Christ, it says we're no longer living in captivity. We're no longer refugees locked in a fence. Like we're now citizens of a new kingdom with all the riches and the privileges that come with it. The final piece of good news is kind of the how-to or maybe a little bit more of an explanation of what being alive in Christ means for us. So listen to Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 as we start to wrap up. It says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were still dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So if you're anything like me, the question that you're asking is this. If, if I'm brought into a new kingdom, if I'm loved by God, brought into a new family, and I now am no longer mastered by sin and death, why do I still sin so much? Why do I lack the self-control to withstand temptation? And the best analogy that I can give to illustrate that comes through this. Growing up, going to the circus, you guys ever been to a circus before? The lion tamer is there in the cage with the eight grown lions, and this little tiny guy has a whip and he cracks the whip, and the eight lions turn around in a circle on their little pedestal. And when I'm like eight or nine years old, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Those lions should be eating that guy's guts out, right? Like each one of them is 900 pounds and they're all, they're all yielding to this tiny little guy. I can remember growing up going to uh, the zoo and every once in a while the zookeeper, this you know, little tiny lady or this little tiny guy in the brown shirt and the brown pants, they're walking down the main boulevard of the zoo and uh, that's the day that they let the elephant out of the cage and the elephant's just you know, marching down and this little tiny person just has just one little tiny poker, just gently nudging that massive elephant, making it behave. And again, I'm asking myself, man, if I'm that elephant, like I'm trampling the snack stand, right? Like I'm making a pancake out of that field trip. Like I'm showing everybody that I'm the biggest, most powerful creature here. Have you guys ever wondered about that? Why does a cage full of grown lions yield to a little tiny lion keeper? Why does a massive elephant yield to a little tiny zookeeper? And I've actually researched this and the answer is pretty profound. To be a performing animal, one thing has to be true about you. You have to have been born in captivity. They'll never take a lion or an elephant that's born in the wild and make them a performing creature. Because as soon as they're born, they're separated from their parents. And that new zookeeper becomes the master over that animal. And they redirect it. And they lift it up. And they carry it around. 
And right from the earliest age, that creature feels like it now has a new master. And even though you fast forward and that lion is now 800 pounds or that elephant is two tons or however big elephants get, every memory in their head is by being mastered by that other creature. They have no recollection of anything else. It's all they know. They're confused about their relationship with this other entity. They don't realize that they're the king of the jungle. They don't realize that they're a massive pachyderm. They just have a lifetime of memories of this other thing having strength and control over it. Ephesians 2, 4 and Ephesians 2, 5 is telling us that you're like that. Your relationship to sin is like that circus lion. Your, my relationship to sin is like that grown elephant. All we've ever known is a sin that's had power over us even though it no longer is stronger than us. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died, burst forth from the grave, sin and death and temptation no longer have power over us. The reason why we keep sinning, the reason why we give in so easily to temptation, the reason we lack self-control is because we just revert back to a life of all we've ever known is yielding to sin and death and temptation. Christian, you are a grown elephant. Christian, you are a a lion. You now have power through Christ over sin and death and temptation. And the only reason you won't is if you willingly yield that power to something that no longer is bigger and stronger than you are. That's the good news of Ephesians 2, 4, 5, and 6. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and conclude our service with another song or two. And as they do, I would just like you guys to uh, just kind of process through the things that we talked about, the the bad news of why we so often lack self-control in the way that we're called to have self-control. Like there's there's bad news, right? Like this world just steers us towards selfishness and gratification and things that are harmful. But we no longer live beholden to that kingdom. We now live in a new kingdom through Jesus Christ. About 10 months ago, my family had the privilege of uh, relocating here to Big Sky from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, it was a great place to live, great place to raise kids, but there's just so many more resources and privileges and benefits that come from living in a town like this. My kids, for example, got three free ski days, downhill ski days through the school. If we were back in Wisconsin, first of all, there's not really even a place to downhill ski. And if we would have found one, you know, I wouldn't have had the money to get all the gear and I get an instructor and teach them how to do that, right? But that's, that's just one example of the, the, the resources that are now available to my family because of this new place that we live in. As we wrap up with this final song or two, I just want you to think as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, are you making the most of the resources that are available to you? to avoid temptation, and to live in the freedom that Christ brought us into. Let's think about that as we wrap up with these final songs.